I'm Moroccan, brother. I'm from Morocco. Uh, we started growing cannabis probably 800, 900 years ago, and it's in the day-to-day -day things. I'll give you an example. When okay. you're a kid, you're teething, a lot of pain, can't sleep, they put a little bourbon, right? In uh -huh. Kentucky, they put a little bourbon. Let's just go with <laughs> it. But in Morocco, they will put a little bit of, it's like they will take it, put a little bit of flour in there, or some hash and tea, uh -huh. or even just to blow that smoke on your face, that will make you sleep when you had a little baby. So that's, that's like anchored in the traditions more than anything. And then you g open to the world and you start studying plants and genomics. And then cannabis just, cannabis just fell actually in my lap. I've been, for the past decade, I've been working in genomics and plants, soybeans, olives, name it. Yeah. And I was like, why don't you take that entire decade of expertise and serve the cannabis industry to you know, deal with bottlenecks and enable scale. That's about it. What, so, so this is like an ingrained cultural component of Moroccan life. Absolutely. We, look, uh, there is a stigma about stoners. Oh, you're stoner, whatever. There is a lot of architect stoners, mm -hmm. engineers, uh, people working in SpaceX. I mean, <laughs> I went to school with some of the brilliant, pe brilliant people around the world. Yeah. Like, I really went to school with some very, very smart people. They're all stoners. When you look at them now, they are between Boeing and Amazon and, and, and Linux and all these full-stack developer people and stuff. It's like, it's okay to smoke weed. It's, it's, it's all right. <laughs> That's why it's legal in the state of Illinois. Yeah. Now, well, and it's, it's funny that you, that, you, that you talk about it in that aspect of, like, all the people that achieve so much while being cannabis consumers and... I think about just something that, that, I, that I heard a couple of weeks ago where somebody was referring to cannabis as an intoxicant, right? Comparing it to alcohol in the same way that alcohol poisons the body to get you to an inebriated feeling, it's not the same with cannabis. That's, cannabis doesn't make, do something toxic to your body. Well, the intoxication from cannabis is you're going to be super hungry, you're going to go through half of your fridge <laughs> and probably pass out and sleep. Yeah. When you're high, you don't take your car and you drive around and you hit people. You know what I'm saying? Alcohol is, is terrible. Yeah. You go to the bar, you drink, you take your car. You're most likely to hit someone on the way. Uh, DUI, name it. You get really high. Let's say extreme cases of being high. You're just going to fall asleep in your couch. <laughs> Worst case scenario. Yeah. And I'll take that over any DUI or any altercation with law enforcement or just just some alcohol in general as it absolutely it just a person who's taking a dog for a walk at one o'clock in the morning and you're drunk driving just just imagine that situation you want you don't want to be there so if we're going to keep demonizing cannabis just look at the other side of what people are doing like, yeah whoever is putting the legislation behind this we need you to be aware to be educated to be able to make the right recommendations for decision makers. So we're not, with, with the laws, it, it, it is just not fair yeah. at this point. A lot of people have been victims to, well, there's a lot of people behind bars because they were carrying a joint at a certain point of their lives. And yeah. is, it, is it worth to take Somebody's someone's entire life? Entire life? Yeah and just throw it in the trash because they decided to smoke a joint. Maybe because they had a lot of pain, a shoulder pain or mm -hmm. knee pain, or maybe some, some trauma. But we didn't, we didn't give people the chance to study this. 
I'll give you an example. The VA. Let's let's just go to something very yeah. sensitive here. Yeah. I have a lot of friends, a lot of veterans. Uh, they're suffering from physical and emotional pain. Mm-hmm. VA should be working with cannabis industry and researchers on cannabinoids and their interaction with our endocannabinoid system to find solutions. People aren't. I mean, I mean, if if we don't care about giving a prescription to get an opioid and we have problem with telling people just this take this edible or this oil or this joint mm-hmm. then the problem is beyond the ethics and what's right what's wrong this is who is lobbying for what and who is making the decision for whom and it's it's very messy and yeah. i don't want to get into that yeah no no but, but i mean but it, but it is just to say that like there is there is so much about uh, a plant that is needlessly demonized absolutely and we'll we'll talk more about your work as we get into our conversation for uh this the 98th episode of the wtf carbondale podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back to this little old place we call home carbondale illinois uh and the gentleman joining me today that calls carbondale home osama badad i appreciate you my friend I appreciate you. For so, me. so jumping into this, right? You talk about being a scientist and 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 working with folks. Is that what brought you to Carbondale? Was was being a scientist and doing sciencey stuff here? Like, how did you get here, man? Of all places, it's funny. I'm gonna tell you this. Like, people think it's this a joke. So, uh, I I worked for uh, American foundations in Africa. I volunteered. I worked with the NIH, with the NLM, going teaching for teachers, training for trainers, kind of stuff to implement bioinformatics and genomics in Africa. Uh, the last time I went there, I went to Nigeria in 2014, was in the middle of the Ebola outbreak, the Boko Haram civil war in Nigeria between Muslims and Christians, mm-hmm. and uh, it was rough. It was it was really rough for us. We some of us were really sick, malaria. Uh, me personally. Uh, so it was it was really tough. Just, just telling you what led me to Carbondale. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm doing all of these uh, trips and volunteering with these foundations, and I came back home, and the the call for the Fulbright program was open. Fulbright program is Senator William Fulbright, who initiated this program mm-hmm. after the World War to bring bright people to the United States. Uh-huh. To build what America is today. Yeah. If it, the, the Fulbright program helped the United States to build the knowledge that we see today in this country. Yeah. So I applied for the scholarship. Uh, I'm, I'm like I'm stressed. I don't like I don't like to be under lights and cameras. I'm I'm, I'm an <laughs> introvert. Like believe yeah. it or not. And I went to that meeting or that interview, and there is the attaché of the embassy there. And there is like the director of Masisi, which is the Moroccan American mm-hmm. c- Commission for Cultural Exchange. It's just very important people. And I'm yeah. sitting there, first year PhD student, I'm like, oh my God. So they asked me a question <laughs> what happened in Nigeria? So I start telling my story. And what happened in Nigeria is amazing, dude. I, uh, I, went, to, uh, I, I went to a, a chapel, uh-huh. I gave a talk at a chapel. Like people were just interested in like, what are you doing here? You're Muslim serving a Christian community in the middle of a civil war with the Muslim community. And I'm like, it doesn't matter your beliefs or your color. It's the purpose. I want to be where I am of use. Yeah. So I just talking, start talking about that experience. And you know what? We didn't even talk about my research at all. 
20, 25 minutes, I get out of the interview. I didn't talk about my research. People are like, why are you out early? People take 45 minutes at least in that interview. So I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, I probably missed it. <laughs> a week later, I get the nomination email. A week later, I am a Fulbright grantee. I'm on board of a 747 coming to the United States. Wow. Fulbright scholarship. It's a very prestigious scholarship. Yeah. Uh, some of the, the president of the United States were Fulbright scholars. Uh, a lot of heads of states all around the world, Fulbright scholars, Nobel Prizes, mm -hmm. Fulbright scholars. So this, the program brought me here. But the funny thing is we have three choices. Uh -huh. You can pick three universities and then you can go to one of them. So we had collaborators in Harvard and DBMI, which is the Department of Biomedical Informatics, mm -hmm. where my f dear friend did his PhD Fulbright year. Mm -hmm. So I was most likely to go there just to continue the partnership. <laughs> I don't think there are a lot of people in this world that are like, I had two choices, Harvard or SIU. And there is, there is, an, there is another, uh, there, well, th it was between, between SIU and here, uh, between uh, Harvard and here. But then I did a little bit of research about this area mm -hmm. and, and Carbondale, dude. When you do research <laughs> about Carbondale when you're from the other side of the planet, uh -huh. it's a different feel. Yeah. It's like Animal House. <laughs> literally you know and i was like i like the outdoors I'm, I'm a farmer but i just pushed it a little bit too far in in plants i, I dive deep into that we'll talk about it later yeah. but i love the landscape and then the school is good and and there is a lot of party in here which is a good experience for someone who's going to come from the other side of the planet yeah. as an ambassador for his own culture yeah and try to melt into this culture i needed to do my research but i loved it but this was not why I came here. I came here because Dr. David Lightfoot, he mm -hmm. passed away last year, was an advisor, a friend, a traveling companion. Like we were, we were thick and we, he was, it was a great scientist, the last of the Mohicans, the last yeah. geneticist. He, like when he died, all of that old school genetics, gone. Wow. He was my Moroccan supervisor's supervisor 15 years ago. <laughs> and when I was like, you know what, maybe I should go there. I look yeah. at his resume and all his contributions, and the guy been inventor of the year. He's a soybean inventor for the past thirty years here at SIU. Like I'm like, you know what, that's what I need to go. Yeah. I flew from Casablanca to New York, from New York to Chicago, from Chicago to St. Louis and took a BART shuttle from St. Louis to University Village, August 5th, 2015. I got here at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's my story with Carbondale. <laughs> two, two ladies saved me that night. Uh, I was supposed to go to the leasing office to get the key to my apartment. It's 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, yeah. and like, there is no one. They're coming out of the gym. It's a 24 hours. Yeah. I asked him a question. They were like, one of the people working at the leasing office lives right there. Antoine, who's going to become a dear friend of mine, he hooked me up. We went in there, got me the keys, everything. You're good to go. And that's, that's my story with Carbondale. That's how I got here. That is, that is such a Carbondale story. I came from halfway across the world, showed up at 2 a.m., and here I was. Yeah, I, f I feel like Carbondale is... A great place for misfits like me. Yeah. 
I was like, that's what they, they call people, like nerds. Or, but I think that we're just, some people are evolving in a, a, a not a dimension, but a sphere that is mm-hmm. parallel to what, what you see. But it just, there is no overlapping. And every time there is no overlap, you go for the weirdo. But, you know, sometimes you talk to people and they're like, yeah. Sometimes you have that constant feeling. Sometimes with your own self, you're like, whoa, am I really a weirdo? Am I crazy? Why am I talking <laughs> to myself? But it's just like the thought and the process is so deep that it's just like you carry on. It's like you don't care if there is no overlap in somewhere. And, and I, I, don't, I don't mind to be the weirdo or the whatever, you know, it's, but well, it's cool. Well, the, the other side of that, right, is that, you know, I, I, think you, I think you pinpointed that, that this is a place where you can just be whatever that person that you need to be is, Absolutely. right? And I, and, I, and I talk with people about this all the time, that it's small enough that you're going to find, or sorry, it's big enough that you're going to find whatever the people are that you need to be connected with in here. But it's small enough that you can still interact with everybody in every way throughout Absolutely. it. And, like, people are just going to welcome you in. Well, this is what happened, man. Uh, uh, I came here, spent a wonderful year doing research, uh, publishing, traveling, giving lectures here and there. Yeah. Uh, and then I had to go back home after the end of my my Fulbright scholarship. Oh. It was a year, intensive research, but I made sure that I see part of the country and I, I, I just... I don't know. I give you examples. You, when you come to Carbondale, the smallest tour of America you can do is take 57 and yeah. go south. Stop at stop in Memphis. Go down. Stop in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Continue all the way down. You are Baton Rouge, or you are in New Orleans. Come around Alabama and come up up here through Tennessee. Mm-hmm. That was the last road trip that I did. My wife and I we were still dating back then. We were broke. We didn't have, we didn't have anything, but I, I needed to see part of the country ex- instead of just flying yeah. and go give a com- talk in a conference and come back. I wanted to see the country because it's part of our mission to come here is when you come back, you need to bring a piece of the culture so you can educate people and break the ice and remove the stigma. You yeah. know? And being here in Carbondale, you're in the heart of the heartland, brother. Yeah, Chicago, Memphis, Louisville, Nashville. Is like, I mean, you're right here in the middle. You can fly whatever you want. And people don't really look at... They don't zoom on this area. They just... Yeah. You know, when you fly over, you don't see anything. <laughs> a lot of woods, a lot of lakes, and small towns here and there. There's a lot of love, man. There's a lot of love and a lot of bright people in these areas. The only problem is we don't aggregate. Yeah. Uh, isolated little outliers in a in a if, if you are doing a, a multiple component analysis, you have clusters, and then you have outliers here and there. Well, and that was one of the things you know, I had uh, John Jackson with the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute on uh, somewhere in the '60s range, I think, and he was talking about you know just years past when SI, one of SIU's functions was weaving the communities of Southern Illinois together just you know, through engagement, 
just going out and, and being part of communities and seeing what resources the university could offer and, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a blueprint to weave people together that exists out there somewhere. It's well, we should not... capitalize on it. <laughs> we should build more layers on it. Why? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's you know, well, especially now. Go ahead. Sorry. Here, here is another thing, like to talk about cannabis right here. We're yeah. talking about yep. communities and how we can help this area to, to elevate the area, right? And uh, cannabis is the only. It's a tide. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cannabis is a tide, and there's a lot of boats sitting right here. Mm-hmm. And with the tide all the boats arise, right? Yeah. We can use that industry to help this entire community with the help of the university. If you, Southern Illinois University is at the heart of this entire area. Yeah. As far as the university is doing well, the entire industries around this area are doing well. Mm-hmm. So we need to keep that heart pumping blood towards all of these organs, all these little communities around. Yeah. We can use cannabis build a program at SIU. And I'm not talking about certificates. I'm not talking about six months, eight mm-hmm. months, bring people in, tell them stories and give them a Gangier certificate and be yeah. like, you're ready for work. No, I'm talking about including this in undergrad programs, master programs, PhD programs, mm-hmm. bring in research. We, we have access. Some folks here, uh, I'll cite Kyle Baker, yeah. uh, dear friend of mine, and I appreciate you for, in, for the introduction. Absolutely, man. Uh, we are willing to bring our networks here to help the university build programs in, you know you can build with hemp, right? Architecture, hempcrete, yeah. the herd out of the plant, mm-hmm. we can break it down to mix it with some certain of binders and water. Mm-hmm. And you have a concrete block, a hempcrete block. You don't have to worry about isolation. You don't have to care about the, the winter and the summer here mm-hmm. because it's good isolation. This shirt right here, 100% <laughs> hemp fiber. Mm-hmm. Looks like linen. It's a little rough. I love linen. It's one of my favorite fabrics. Uh-huh. This is a little robust, a little rough, but it looks good. You, you will never tell that's not linen. Yeah. So there is so here architecture we can we can have textile industry, uh, animal feed, animal bedding, we can cannabinoids, the extraction. So we can build a lot of industries on this one plant. Yeah. But we need to get the university on board. They need to understand that building a relationship with private companies is what making the difference today in the ranking of universities. Mm-hmm. When you go to Harvard, Cornell, UC San Diego, UC Berkeley, these universities, they're not big because they have the smartest people. No, because when they had an opportunity a long time ago mm-hmm. to partner with a private company, they did. They did it. They, they're building all these relationships with private companies and those private companies they are dealing with the industry day in and day out so they bring that need to the university the university with the established systems of R&D can solve problems and we did this at SIU I worked with Professor Maxim uh, in mm-hmm. his lab 
and work with the soybean industry. Soybean industry needed a high oleic content in soybeans. We made populations of mutant, and we screened them with forward and reverse genetics. I can explain this a little further later. So, well, uh, yeah, but I mean, this this is a good jumping off point there. Like, first off, you're you're already working towards that. Like, you haven't just come in as a student and sought, you know, that activity, but you've come in, you know, in private business and said, how do I, as somebody who has been through, you know, all of the different rungs of academia, engage the system with private business? Absolutely. And it's key. It's really key because what universities cannot do or what universities cannot afford, private companies can through their networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say we want to set up a, a growing facility to teach, for example, students. Mm-hmm. Just the lighting, all, all the material, all the equipment that we need, we can get that for free just from our partners. Please take this and try it. Mm-hmm. This is what, what, what people are doing. Yeah. They will flood you with lighting and, and racks and, and media to grow. Just please try it and give us data so we can use. Mm-hmm. We can find equipment. We can, we can help in so many ways. We just need that understanding from the university that we, as private companies, we want to make money, yeah. but we want to give back to these communities. Otherwise, we'll be somewhere else. Yeah. If you come here and you see the potential, but you want to make this better and you have the means for it, I think if you don't do it, that's on you. And if someone is bringing you the resources, the knowledge, the love, brother, and the respect. Like, yeah. my relationship with SIU is just beyond a, a, just a partnership. I came here. This community welcomed me. I published at least 10 or 11 manuscripts and a, a, wow. a, a book chapter <laughs> with SIU. SIU, uh-huh. they wrote about me and the research that I've been doing and everything. So I feel like literally that I, it's my duty to give back. And that's what I told the lab what I would. I told them Gromix is a platform for you guys if you want to do any epigenetic work on soybean. Yeah. And today we are a two joint venture. We, we submitted two grants, one for the Department of Energy mm-hmm. to use hemp as a commodity to clean up my land around oh, this yeah. area. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And then we have one for soybean to deal with soybean cis nematode. It's, it's, it costs around... $40 billion a year for the soybean industry, uh, the losses, because this nematode can just destroy your entire field, mm-hmm. and you don't see it because it happens in the root. Yeah. So before you know it, your entire field is gone. We're trying to apply the technologies from Gromix to, to tackle these problems because SIU doesn't have the knowledge or the resources for it. So I'm providing the kits, the platform, the equipment, mm-hmm. and SIU is providing the genetic material and we're going to get all together, do a research, publish manuscript together so we can continue building on that very initial mm-hmm. relationship that I built with SIU. The, the ideal public-private partnership type of opportunity. Absolutely. Like, my goal is it's mutual. Look, here's yeah. the thing. When I have in my back of university, such as SIU, when I go negotiate a deal with someone, I have a backup. I know that I have something solid that is helping me. Yeah. But in the same time, that deal that I'm negotiating, I am bringing it to the university. Mm-hmm. I'm making, like, to break it down, I'm, I'm making a sandwich. Yeah. And I'm bringing the sandwich to SIU. And we're like, hey, I'll take half and you take half. Yeah. 
private-public partnership is the key for SIU to get back to when we had 30,000 students. And, and at scale, right, you're, you're talking about a very particular thing because it's not about going out and engaging a large organization that already exists, right? There, there, is, there is plenty of that that goes on throughout higher education, right? I, I can think of the, you know, a, a recent um, set of reporting that, that has started to come out through uh, Illinois Public Radio and, and their investigation into uh, large ag firms contributing to ag programs and so on and so forth and what, what that influence looks like. We're talking about creating businesses out of here and not going in and finding something that's already an established institutional business player, but starting to develop the businesses from square one here and finding a way to, to just in 30, 50, however many years have that collection of, of, you know, businesses that started here, like a, like a Google that started out of. Yeah. A basement in, where, I uh, mean, not <laughs> only Google, like, look at Amazon. Yeah. Look at, it's like Apple. And we don't have garages here. We have, look at this facility. Like, this <laughs> yeah, yeah like we amazing. have way more than garages. I walked in and I'm like, yeah, we can, we can do a lot of things here. It's pretty and you have equipment and it's nice. And it's the beginning, but it's already looking marvelous. Yeah. And this, this incubator, let's just talk about this incubator for yeah. a second. This is a, it's supposed to be an innovation center where... I would love to walk here one day and see this place just like popping with kids, white coats, yeah, labs, like uh, R and D. There is a, some really interesting kids that are doing VR right now. They have an academy. Yeah, I was like when I saw them the first time, I'm like, I thought I was cool with my research, but these guys are like amazing. Yeah, we we should we should have more. It, it's it's an innovation center. We should have businesses related to innovation. Yeah open this look there is there is clusters everywhere in the united states mm -hmm. for me as a startup company i could have went to st louis they will write me a fifty thousand dollar check so i can have my startup company in one of those clusters accelerated i, I got a, i got an ad on facebook uh several weeks ago that was for a similar type of uh rural setting in i want to say idaho that was like we have a business incubator we have a university. We have this small town with all this, and it was just like, why? Why can't we present ourselves like that? I don't know why we don't. I don't know why we don't. Like honestly, it's like you have channels here and radios. Like, why? Why not? You have a platform right within the incubator. Yeah. It's like, you know what you should do? You should get every single one of these little innovators here and and put them in this chair. Oh, absolutely. And let them and let them talk about their experiences. Maybe this way. And using the hashtags and the and all these TikToks and Instagram, yeah. that that's 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 the real platform. Like literally, today, if you are in the cannabis industry and you're blocked everywhere, go to LinkedIn. Oh, absolutely. And people, that's what's crazy to me, right? Is that like of all places that became the social platform for cannabis, it it's is. LinkedIn. It's free. And if you want to push it a notch, you can pay twenty nine ninety nine a month yeah. and you have access to everything you want yeah like literally job offers like all kind of meetings they post everything in there and it's a really good platform and i use it every day i use it literally every day all my contact all yeah. all this network that i've been building for the past two three years around cannabis 
was mainly because of LinkedIn. And then I flew to Vegas and West Coast to those conferences. Yeah. And then I met those people. Well, and you have real conversation. I love watching you interact on LinkedIn because when you pop up, like you're asking questions of people, you're making people like validate a statement that they might make. You're asking questions to further your own knowledge. You are engaging in the, in the community as a whole, as like a, a professional individual and a person who is what, what's the word that I'm looking for here? Um, you know, just somebody who is, uh, you know, of knowledgeable rapport in, in this space. I, I love LinkedIn. Why? Because there is there is a lot of good things and there is the hype as well. And the yeah. hype in the cannabis industry is <laughs> hilarious. Like you have these people like, I'll take an example. The last, uh, well, someone did a study on CBD uh, and CBG. And its effects on, can- effects on, uh, COVID, on, on and- COVID and everything. And the hype was like, oh, we <laughs> oh, smoke. smoke we I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. When you smoke you don't get any of those compounds. Yeah. Okay? When you smoke THCA, when you smoke it, all you get is CBN. Uh-huh. Right? You're taking an edible, there's a different voie of processing of that. You never get that. You never get that CBG or... or, or yeah. Or, like you don't, and <laughs> on top of that, it was done in a Petri dish. It was an isolated <laughs> yeah. molecule that they did something on, on a petri dish on a cell. Uh, in vivo is completely different. Uh-huh. So, so this is the kind of hype that is misleading. Yeah. And people out there are just like, I don't want to even get into the genetics part of cannabis because the hype that I see out there, I'm like, you guys are growing the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's, you know when, you, when you go do a, a COVID test and they're like, oh, you need a PCR test. So we're like, accurate. Let me show you what a PCR. There we go. There we go. This man's got transitions. This man's got transitions right here. I'm like, if I'm going to compete with Kyle Baker bringing, bringing a, robot, a robot, I'm going to bring a PCR. <laughs> All right. This here, is a, let, me, let me make sure that the camera's yeah. so you can see yourself. This is a thermocycler. This is literally a PCR machine. So when you... When you go and they do all the swab on your nose and they put it in a little tube and it looks all scientific, they take that just to extract genetic material out of it. So they extract that genetic material and they put it in this machine. This PCR is just to amplify an input of DNA in here. So they put that sample in here. It will take that copy of whatever virus you have, multiply it, and then give them the results. And they're like, oh... You have the virus because we could amplify fragments of it mm-hmm. using this machine. So this is like part of the thing that we do with cannabis. For example, someone stole your genetics. Uh-huh. You know, someone was like, no, this variety is mine. Yeah. Uh, we ha- do you have a fingerprint for that, for that genetic that you mm-hmm. claim? No, I don't. So what's, what's, what's your proof? You need, you need proof that if you're saying that those genetics are mine, I need a fingerprint. I need, you to st- I need people to start genotyping their, their plants. Yeah. Here is the thing. This is something very important that we're talking about it. Uh, you know a blueprint for a house? Uh, yeah. yeah. There is the same thing for, for genetics. It's a polymorphism in that DNA. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of that DNA. It's, it, it's base, it's, DNA is like A, T, C, and G. So you have a signature that is specific to those genetics. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a polymorphism that is specific to those genetics. If you sequence and you genotype them, 
one day someone comes telling you that those genetics belong to them or a big company with mm -hmm. the federal legalization mm -hmm. come to you and try to steal your genetics, you can tell them, I have an ID for my genetics. So if you want this, you're going to have to pay for it. This is the only way we can protect those farmers mm -hmm. or those legacy growers up yeah. in Humboldt County and have a fingerprint of your genetics so you can protect yourself from big companies as soon as we have federal legalization Do in you, this country. Is, is that what's coming down the pipeline in terms of like people people copywriting, trademarking, using, like setting things into intellectual property? If you want to set that back to where it was, I can, re I can reset the camera. We're good. Uh, but like that's what's coming down the pipeline when there's us I'm sorry talk to the microphone that's what's coming down the pipeline when there are when when there is the ability to work within the typical structure of of intellectual property rights as set forth by the federal government like when that goes down it's going to be a mad dash for people to own the genetics and have a way to say that they own those genetics Absolutely. I'm going to tell you what happened. What's going to happen is there is no banking act so far. Mm -hmm. So big companies are just standing by. They're just sitting there and watching. You know, the, 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 lion, the lioness is hunting. The <laughs> hyenas are sitting right there and watching. Uh -huh. They want to steal. Or a cheetah. Let's just talk about a cheetah because a lioness is a little stronger. So a yeah. cheetah will, will go and put the entire effort. Cheetah got 30 seconds. If he doesn't catch anything in 30 seconds, you need to stop or the heart going to explode. Uh -huh. So when cheetahs, they catch something, they don't eat it. They have to wait for their body to go back to that temperature and a normal metabolism they start eating. Mm -hmm. That's when hyenas attack. Upon federal legalization, all of these big companies, they're going to need access to genetics. Mm -hmm. Where do you think they're going to go? MSOs are really big for them. Maybe Marlboro will come in and be like, okay, uh, I don't know, any of these big MSOs here, mm -hmm. they can swallow them. But the real genetics are not with those big companies. Because if you look at an eighth sold by an MSO and a legacy grower, you throw the other eighth in the trash, dude. Uh -huh. So they're going to go for those genetics are sitting in freezers up in the mountains. Those people, if they have a fingerprint for every single one of those genetics, mm -hmm. it will give them leverage to negotiate with those big companies. I have this genetics, this plant right here. It will give you this much CBD, this much THC, all of these terpene, all of these profiles. And on top of that, I have the genetic fingerprint that gives you that, that mm -hmm. set us apart from the rest of the genetics. And that's what big companies are interested in because it's IP. That's something that they can own mm -hmm. and they can charge people for it. And I did that with SIU working on a soybean germplasm. Mm -hmm. We used to make populations of mutant and we sell them to Bayer and BASF and Monsanto for a lot of money. It's all about intellectual property. And the only way you can protect yourself is through genetic testing. But what happened is, I'm not going to say the name, but one of these companies went there and asked people to genotype their genetics and everything, but they stole genetics from them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the problem now because there is a gap that is 
we need to heal first mm -hmm. and then build, uh, rebuild the relationship of trust between scientists and those growers so we can protect them from what's coming. And this is coming from a genuine person. I, yeah. I flew there. I flew to L.A. and I took a Greyhound bus <laughs> to Fresno, California. What, so here's, here's a question for you that, that gets us a little out of, the, out, of the, out of the science talk. But, like, when it comes to traveling, right, like, what, what are the experiences that you have had that just makes it easy to do to go wherever you need to go? And like, how much does that allow you to, to pursue the endeavors that you want to pursue? Right. Cause like some people would look at it and go, Oh, well, I'm not going to fly to wherever and get on a Greyhound bus and ride up into the middle of the mountains of nowhere and blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, that's not for me. They're like, I'd rather, you know, sit in an office and make phone calls. If it doesn't go through, it doesn't go through. Right. Like, nah. is that is that an edge that you feel like you've got? Dude, because you're like, I can't go anywhere. I can talk to anybody. If there is if there is a road that leads there or a boat that I can go down the river on, like I will find a way to get to where I need to go. I don't mind. Yeah. Going through the hustle of. Going from here to St. Louis, flying to L.A. And the bus, the ride on board of that bus was hilarious because. I, I felt like I was somewhere else. I wasn't in America. A w wonderful Mexican community in that bus going to the valley. That's uh -huh. where they work. And it, it was amazing. I don't, I don't, I'm a traveler, dude. I, I lived around the planet. I yeah. lived in over 10 countries. And it's what makes the character, what, what gives you that ability to walk into a room, start talking. Without like, nah, no. It's get exposed to different people, different cultures and customs and languages and religions so you can build that character. So a person in front of you is not a problem anymore. Yeah. But to go back to that, uh, the traveling and everything, yeah, I did all of that. And, and it was very, very bad conditions. Like traveling, it was, it was cold, it was raining, and the roads were insane. You're in a Greyhound. <laughs> I get there and I meet those people who are in trucks and... We're going into these big farms and stuff, and it was amazing. And when you sit there and you start talking about science, silence in those greenhouses. It's like everybody is listening, and I love it because people are like, maybe this guy is saying something. If he accepted to pay for his travel yeah. to come here just to say that and help us with our problems, we should give him a shot. And it was we spent... Three days, wonderful three days with those farmers. I had some friend of mine. They came from Humboldt County, from Salmon Creek, uh, bringing some genetics. And we sat there and we talked and worked all these projects. I love it. And I would love to have something like here in Illinois where I can go and just meet with farmers that grow in hemp or whatever. Whatever content of THC is in there. Like, we need, we need to stop. There is one plant, cannabis sativa, and we need to just... So except so that so that's that's a that's a good question for folks like where where are we at now as as like our relationship to cannabis societally right where we say oh there's so much different cannabis this that the other but you're coming in saying no from a scientific standpoint there is a plant and this is it the, okay I'm gonna give you this uh, let's there is different content of of sugar in, in soybean or in, in, in corn. Mm -hmm. Why we don't, they're crops. Why they're not regulated? Look, you can, you can make moonshine out of corn, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't regulate corn. 
I don't care what you do with it. So uh-huh. cannabis is a plant that can give you a seed for oil extract. can give you a flower with cannabinoids, to medicine, and it's also to get high. It can give you fiber, can give you herd, can give you a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So why are we going to take a fraction, which is nothing but a secondary metabolite, it's not even a primary metabolite in, 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 in cannabis. Mm-hmm. Cannabinoids are secondary metabolites that are used for to react to the environment. All those cannabinoids you see in those trichomes, mm-hmm. that's a reaction to the plant towards the environment. Yeah. Why are we going to take a tiny little compound in an entire plant and demonize it? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. So just treat it like a crop. We humans, we have a weird psychology. We tend to go towards the prohibited, the informed, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anything that is... The taboo. Yes. The, yeah. We are very curious. If you take this and make it just... Just treat it as another crop. All of this hype and this interest and this weird things going on, they're just going to collapse. Because the, on, the only thing that is pushing people towards this is because you cannot get it. Human psychology is yeah. weird, man. You, you tell them that... <laughs> like, oh, you tell them that you cannot drink in the streets. Uh-huh. People still drink in the streets because they want to they defy the system. They want to, like... Push the limits. Mm-hmm. But if you tell them, yeah, it's okay, they're going to abuse it for a second, but then it's going to become just a normal thing. You know what I'm saying? It's just take it out of the closet. Take it out of the closet. I, if anybody is listening to this or watching this, just read about the plant. Uh, people just need to read about that plant. Who, 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 come, who came up with the 0.3? Why yeah. do you think that 0.3... THC content is okay, and 0.4 is not, or 1% is not. Mm-hmm. Just make that compliance very tough on people so they cannot make it, because they know to achieve 0.3 THC percent in a CBD dominant variety, it's really hard. Yeah. And just the environment will mess with your genetics and make them test hot for THC, and then you have to destroy your crop. Why would you do that? If the idea of legalizing this is to build wealth and equity in little communities and social equity programs and all of the here again it's the hype using the flag mm-hmm. to slide a lot of things mm-hmm. why 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 are we doing this if we're not actually serving the little community oh the farmer here in southern illinois would love to have the opportunity to grow hemp as a cash crop yeah you know what I'm saying? Uh, people can work their entire breeding programs and just select from their own plants and, and just be sustainable and produce something that has value. A bushel of, of corn? What is, it? what is it? Half a dollar? Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I got a, a pound of, of smokable hemp flour. On top of that... I didn't want to talk about it, but carbon sequestration is yeah. my thing. Like, yeah, I don't absolutely. even care about cannabinoids. Yeah. But it's just the industry is so focused on these things. You take, but, you take your in that you can get. But absolutely. The, like, the I, can, real... I can do it. Why not? If I can help, why not? But carbon sequestration? You, we can take an acre of, of 25 years old cedar trees. Mm-hmm. And an acre 
of hemp. The amount of carbon, that the carbon from the atmosphere that's going to be fixed by that biomass in hemp, fourfold. In a year's time versus 25 yeah. years' time. Yeah, because I can do two cycles of hemp. I can do an autoflower and do two cycles. Autoflowers don't care about sunlight. Yeah, pulling all of that carbon out of the atmosphere, putting it in the biomass through the roots, and you're turning the soil into a carbon sink because you're pushing all of that carbon to the soil. All this area is full of strip pits for, from, from mines, yeah, right? Yeah. If we can turn those big holes into carbon sinks, sequester that carbon, work that soil, make it really good, phytoremediate that soil. Mm -hmm. We know that hemp is a phytoremediator. It will suck all the heavy metals out of the soil. Mm -hmm. So not only we are taking the, the carbon from the atmosphere, putting it as organic matter in the soil, but we're taking heavy metals out of that soil and putting it in the, the biomass. That biomass can go get decorticated into herd and we can build houses with it. So, so Not only you are trapping the heavy metals yeah. in the hempcrete, you are building something that could be, that could be zero emission. It's, it's, it's literally a piece of carbon, the atmosphere carbon dioxide is trapped into a brick in your house. Phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, like, if we're not trying to help the planet cleaning it from within, yeah. if you're going to rely on Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos to find another planet, well, they're going to go there and you're going to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. I yeah. just, you know, I, and it's... Ah, and I, and I, I hadn't, you know, we, we hadn't talked in depth about, you know, how that carbon sequestration and how uh, the the uh, absorption of heavy metals into the biomass kind of works. So I, I, had, I had never like dug that deep with you or Kyle or anybody yet, but to think that it's like, it's like literally that simple that carbon, carbon gets locked from the plant back into the soil where it belongs, where, where it came from to begin with, right? Oil, coal, everything yeah. was all, was, you know, was, Absolutely. <laughs> exists it was because it was yeah, carbon at one point. Yeah, organic matter. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know when you see those like really thick branches, that's all carbon. Mm -hmm. That carbon was trapped by the photosynthetic system. So basically the plant to grow needs light and carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So they go hand in hand. Absorb light through chlorophyll, get your carbon, make ATP, that's energy for the plant, mm -hmm. that's, and you see it in biomass. Those gorgeous green plants, mm -hmm. that's carbon, literally, that's your atmospheric carbon dioxide in there. So let's say, let's say that, that a plot of hemp gets planted over mined reclamation uh, land. And the hemp absorbs the heavy metals out of the ground, but it doesn't get turned into an industrial use like a hempcrete or something like that. If you shred that biomass and you just throw it back into, you know, or onto the land, what does that in turn do? What, what has happened in that sense? Well, let's say you took all the heavy metal, but you put it back in, in, in 
not all of it, mm-hmm. but some of it got used, but you still have residual. There. Yeah. They're going to go back to the soil. But okay. still, your, what your gain is, is that that biomass is going to sit on that land mm-hmm. and get decomposed into organic matter that yeah. will help that soil. So if we can do this in phases, mm-hmm. either we'll go in and put some organic matter in that soil first, and then by the time we find a way to process that biomass, we'll take the heavy metals. Mm-hmm. Or if the university is willing to do some R&D in here, how mm-hmm. can we build a processing facility around here yeah. with private partners here again? Mm-hmm. I know th- you go to the university and I'm like, oh, we need $20 million to build a facility. They're like, oh, well, we can't do that. But if I bring two, three companies mm-hmm. willing to invest in this area with a partnership with SIU, mm-hmm. then it's not going to become a problem. And now we have a process- processing facility here for that biomass we just made out of dirty soils. Yeah. Kyle Baker will talk about this. The soybean industry in, uh, what is that town here, with the uh, Centralia. Uh-huh. So someone came to Centralia and said, I'm going to build a soybean threshing processing facility. Would you grow soybean for me? I'll buy it from you. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes Centralia the world capital of soybean today. No, and, and I, I know. Come he, on. He, and, he, and he's told me the story of the gentleman that did all of this. And he was yeah. like, that's my blueprint. You know, he's like, that's, that's what, I'm, what he is building his companies off of. Come on. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> um, but like that's, you know, it's to do what needs to be done right now in this area is not something new in terms of how to execute, right? There is a blueprint that exists for this. Absolutely. We just got to do it. Look, someone, someone already like... If if you drive if you drive around this area you're gonna see feral hemp growing on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. If you go you go past Nashville and don't take that left to go to St. Louis, just keep going, you're gonna see some feral hemp there. So there is a history of hemp in this area. Yeah. So what happened is back in the prohibition, mm-hmm. the lumber industry decided that well we cleared up a lot of land for Americans. And now the hemp and the fiber people are taking the market away from us. What ha- what's going on in America? They, they had money, lobbyists. Mm-hmm. They shut down the entire hemp industry. Well, we need to bring it back. Because now lumber is very expensive. Yeah. So, alternative. I'm like, I don't know what else we can say about this. Like, I mean, it's, but you, it's but just you... calling our names from every corner. Yeah. From every aspect of... Our daily life. I'm gonna give you an example. You know when you you go to these beautiful staples and they have horses, that animal bedding. What mm-hmm. do, what do they use? Uh, wood chips. Wood chips. They get wet really quick. Yeah. The horrible isolation. The smell. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> They're using hemp bedding in Oklahoma for like like just big ranches like. Cattle everywhere. Mm-hmm. This is how, like, the byproducts of that plant, we can, we can use them everywhere. We can use them everywhere. Like, 
come on, it's plastic. Did you see the hand yeah. bioplastic? Oh yeah, that, I mean they can they can just des- they can degrade in two months as opposed to two thousand years. Cannabis companies should think about their packaging. All of that glass and wood. Mm-hmm. How about hemp? Something that if I throw in the trash, I know that's going to get decomposed really quick. Yeah. Instead of having a whole cabinet full of those little jars and that you, how are you going to get rid of that? Plastic and glass and, yeah. and hemp. <coughs> hemp containers. They're pretty. Mm-hmm. I have a grinder. It's made out of hemp. If wow. you look at it, it's like, this is plastic. No, it's hemp. You know what? Quality of grinding, way better than plastic or steel. Mm-hmm. And you don't hear that. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Like, I keep, like, just finding these, these hemp products, and they are amazing. Like, why not? Did you try the milk? Have I tried what? Hemp milk. No, I've not. It's like, if you try almond, if you try, uh, I don't know, all kind of milk... Mm-hmm. It's a little weird. You you can taste the plant, but when you look at the, all the like all the composition in there, man, it's like really good fatty acid, especially vitamin three and vitamin nine, oleic acid and linoleic acid, and it's low in omega six, which is a pro-inflammatory, which is soybean, uh-huh. soybean oil. Well, soybean oil is very important for American people because that's the major source of vitamin E. Mm-hmm. You see tocopherol, which means vitamin E. Hemp. Could be an alternative, man. The, the profile, the fatty acid content, the polyphenol, and the secondary metabolites in, in hemp oil, it's wonderful. Uh, and people are starting using it everywhere. Uh, you go to Whole Foods now. Well, I mean, what, what was product. it that I saw? The Pepsi. Pepsi's coming out with like a hemp cola. That I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Nike is coming with the, the 77 model, a really? hemp one. I saw it. I'm like, I texted my wife. I sent her a screenshot. I'm like, well, I want this. She's like, That's something pretty cool. If these big brands are showing the use of hemp, yeah. that's the trend. It's, it's a big company. They have millions of followers. They will, Nike puts a hemp pair of, of Air Forces out in the market. First day, yeah. they're going to be sold out everywhere just because hemp is cool yeah. and Nike is doing it and LeBron James is, we- James is wearing it. Yeah. Or Kevin Durant. or who, just All it takes Somebody. is one start. Yeah. One start. And then it's there. And it's like one post on Instagram or LinkedIn and those, those stars, they have millions of followers, dude. And people just got to start ordering it. Yep. And now, there's, and now hemp is commonplace again all of a sudden. It's it's durable, it's a durable fabric, and you can make, like I I, I see people processing hemp plants to like different textures. Mm-hmm. You know those laminate floors and like mm-hmm. it's it, it's yeah. not you know the, the vinyls, weird the vinyl roll out stuff. Yeah. The ones made out of hemp, it depend of the size of the herd. You have a different pattern. Mm-hmm. Insane. It looks <laughs> like you pour like. Uh, Epoxy mm-hmm. on top of it. It's like sleek and shiny and good looking, and it's durable, you know? Instead, laminate floor or whatever, you just water on it, or you have a pet. Let it run. Every run. year, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta change it. <laughs> so, you uh, here, getting away from business talk, 
and and shop talk on on cannabis for a moment doing doing some of the personal insight that that comes along with these uh with these podcasts how did you and your wife meet that's Dude, that's that's, that's what a I, funny one <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny one because you're like well, if Nathan asks you about how we met, just don't say anything crazy. Ah! I'm, I'm like, you know what I'm going to say? I'm, I'm going to say details. Like, we're, we're here. The, the purpose of this podcast is to open up. Yeah, you got it. Just like open up to the, that level where it's, it becomes intimate. Because this area, I think that's the way we should go. We should get close to each other. Especially when you look like that and I like, look like this. Like, like <laughs> yeah. people are like, what are you guys doing together? It's really weird. But to go back to the, uh, we met a pinch. Ah, pinch penny. RIP. <laughs> it's like pinch penny is a landmark. And I'm so sad that we just lost that. Yeah. That's a piece of Carbondale, dude. Like yeah. when I came to Carbondale in 2015, I, I just say this to like make myself feel better. I think that was the last golden age of Carbondale, mm-hmm. 2015. You, when you see people in the street having fun and school, the campus is full of people, yeah. and and you know, and it, after 2015, it's just like whew, it went down really quick. It was it was coming like yeah the curve, but it was it was just like going down really. So we met at Pinch. Uh, the beer garden was open. Yeah, I'm there with a friend of mine from Seychelles. He was here on an aviation program, and we speak French. Uh, we speak French in Morocco. He's from Seychelles. They speak French, so we're sitting there and just, just talking. <laughs> uh, and, and then Brianna, she's standing right there with her friend. It was it was her friend's birthday, and she was standing there and she heard French, and she turned around and she said something. And he, you know how it works. Yeah. Oh, where, where, and when did you learn French? And one things after another, and we just started talking. And so she speak French as well. Yes, she took that in high in high school, in high school but. Yeah. Her French is pretty good for someone who lives in here. Yeah, yeah, for someone like, who lives in Southern like, Illinois. <laughs> you speak French here? That's weird. But, and it's like, even at home, uh, sometimes I'll just say something in French and she'll catch it, you know, and it's, that's where we met, Pinch Man. And uh, uh, just from there, we, she was a genuine person. You know, yeah. uh, to, when you come here and you don't know anybody, uh, the first person that you meet Usually it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Like you get screwed the first time you meet someone because like you come from the other side of the planet and people they like oh I don't know and my name is Usama dude like just, come on <laughs> we'll just talk about it for a second and uh, yeah we just started talking and she she drove me ev- everywhere I don't drive I've never been behind a wheel in my life really so my carbon like imprint like like is, at that time or even now you still don't drive never 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 in my life like till today I I don't drive. Wow. I wish they had more sidewalks in this town. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 walk, I walk everywhere. Unless it's really far, and then I'll take an Uber, or yeah. she will take me. So we had these Sunday afternoon drives where she will pick me up, and we'll go on a little drive around Southern Illinois. Wineries, mm-hmm. just all these little back roads. She was a photographer for Teacher of Nature, and she was all over the place. Uh-huh. So we just we go, we get stoned, and we enjoy the parks here. We hike, and that relationship... Build up really quick, and what? 2015. I went back home. I came back. We got married 2017, May 1st. Wow. I got married, and we've been married for what? It's gonna be five years now, soon. 
Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Pinch Pinch was a really good place. <laughs> like whoever bought it or closed it, please just open that place. Open it back. <laughs> like open it back. I don't know what happened there, man. It's it's sad. And this is just like when you have landmarks like this just falling. Yeah. Just like the empire is like falling apart. Like what's going on? And towns and big cities when they fall down, there is always a man to build them back up. Yeah. Let's talk about New York City, San Francisco. It's like in the middle of like back in the time where people didn't have resources, look what happened in San Francisco, burned down and someone went out lending people and years later it's the Bank of America. Well, Um, and I mean, and it comes down to, you know, there being, when there is a void, right, there is always an opportunity, right? Like, and that's why I I see, you know, the, the cannabis industry and it's wide depth of applications that you've described briefly. Like I was Bre- just yeah, bar- to yeah, like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is this way. is this is cliff notes. Yeah, it's like exactly <laughs> cliff notes. Like, yeah, really quick. But but like the the reality is right that you know if if there was a lot of activity in a different industry, if there was uh, a lot of uh, you know just general financial stability throughout the region, if there were not, uh, you know, issues with population decline and, uh, you know, access to resources and so on and so forth, that nobody would be looking for another opportunity in this place right now, right? But because there is a void of activity, there is a void of opportunity, right? That it makes it easier to go out to the general public over the course of time, right? It doesn't happen overnight, but it makes it easier to introduce a new, you know, we say new, but really hemp is old, old as, yeah. <laughs> you know, civilization itself. Um, but introducing it in a new way to say, hey, you know, this thing that you've missed out on for this long, like maybe it's, maybe it's time to give it a shot. Absolutely. And uh, I'm like, I was talking to Kyle, like, what, what do we have to do? to get people on board do we have to like just the two of us walk in the strip with like big signs let's go grow hemp everywhere here or like something like that we we need to have a serious honest conversation with the university the city council the decision makers around here businessmen people a lot of people i get i get phone calls and, and emails like hey we're from the area we have interest in medical marijuana this and that but I need you to show up. I need you to not just let's, let's just talk behind veils and curtains. Like yeah. let's let's bring this to the city. It needs to be a public conversation. Absolutely. Have uh, once once a month private companies, university, media, business people, businessmen and women in this industry or not in the industry to get together and meet in the city council or whatever building where we can sit and talk. And just talk about it. Yeah. Just really talk about it. It's, 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 I, I, I get, this is, uh, we can take this example really quick. <laughs> the, the uh, enrollment rate at Isayu. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very concerning. Yeah. If you look at other universities that adopted only a six to eight months license, mm-hmm. cannabis license, the enrollment rates, and retention rate. So you're not only bringing new people, 
but your people are getting interested in those subjects and building the industry and, and exactly instead of losing your your students to another university here in Illinois because well, they have a license program keep them here and bring people here because we are in the best place for this industry mm -hmm. like this this is an agricultural area and whatever we apply to corn and soybean and cotton all these years we can build an industry around hemp absolutely yes But here again, who is going to play the role to aggregate all of these components? Mm -hmm. And if we rely on other people to do it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. This is, you know, these kind of immersion markets, the effort starts here. But they need to reach the top really quick to make them make the decisions for mm -hmm. the flow to go. Because if, if it moves too slow that somewhere in the middle between the start and the, and the peak is going to get killed somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. So, so some other interest is going to come in and absolutely take it out from underneath us. And so like, why not? Uh, it's, it's legal here. We can, we can, we have a 2018 farm bill for that point three mm -hmm. and it's legal in the state of Illinois for recreational purposes. Why not make this as a hub for genetic distribution? For example, if you are a company here in Illinois and you want to acquire genetics, you cannot have them from California. Mm -hmm. uh, that's against the law. As soon as you cross state, I think it's a felony. Yeah. So you can't do that. So the illicit market is insane. How all these people here getting their genetics from? That's a different question. Why not make genetics here with the university made in Illinois for the people of Illinois? Yeah. Just like campaign, just like a campaign, just like this, made here for the people of Illinois. Yeah. Just if, let's say, we're gonna start growing outside. Conditions here in Southern Illinois are pretty tough. Flowering season, humidity and heat here is insane. Mm -hmm. We need to have acclimation for those genetics to be able to go through flowering in the conditions that we have here. Humidity, heavy clay soil, all of that. It's like people don't care about this. Because it's not an issue yet. It's not a bottleneck yet. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying here is go ahead of the market. Give yourself the chance to be two, three years ahead of the market. That's why we're doing epigenetics agromics. Nobody's mm -hmm. looking at epigenetics right now. Everybody is happy with genes and genomes. Yeah, and, so, what, and so what, what is the difference in what you're doing, in what you do with plants, versus what the common discussion around things like um, genetically modified organisms and stuff is okay. right because you're you're in a completely different world. I mean, I I, I don't don't I'll, let me I'll, say I'll, completely I'll break world, it down. Yeah. To, uh, I like to use the Russian dolls uh -huh. to explain <laughs> this. So, you, to a plant, you have different layers. You mm -hmm. have the phenotype is what you see, or even for a human, the phenotype mm -hmm. is the color of the skin, the eyes, whatever. Mm -hmm. For a plant, is what you actually see. There is a genotype, which is the genetic material, the DNA that gives, that its expression gives you that phenotype. Mm -hmm. That's another layer in the Russian doll. You know, you open this one, you find another one, you open that one, you <laughs> find another one. So what I do is I understand 
the mechanism that controls that genotype that interact with the environment to give you that phenotype. Mm -hmm. So I'm like a layer deeper than everybody else. I'm, it, let's say uh, we know that THCA, uh, Santase, that makes THC, is governed by copy number variation, which, which means mm -hmm. copy number, it's how many copies of that gene you have in there that it's making can, uh, THC. If you have one copy, you have like 1%. Mm -hmm. If you have, I don't know, five copies, you have 25%. That's how it works. So what, what I do is I want to understand beyond the number of the copies, mm -hmm. what else controls the gene expression of that gene. So just look at it from Russian dolls, one inside of one, and the layer that I'm working on is that deepest little one that mm -hmm. you cannot open because there is nothing after that. Mm -hmm. That's why I want to go ahead of the market in cannabis two, three years because it's, it's not going to be like soybean or corn. Uh, the, the last 10 years, the biotechnology, the sequencing, mm -hmm. the, all of that technology just went really fast. Yeah. I want to make, take advantage of that and start applying the cutting edge technology that is still being developed to cannabis. So when all of these people are done working on their genes and mapping genes mm -hmm. and stuff, and they cannot explain what's going on with what they have, they're going to need another layer. And that's going to be me sitting right there. So that's, that's what I want. I want to be ahead of the market two to three years. That's it. It's easy and simple. <laughs> you, you are looking at locks. I'm looking at different combinations. Yeah. The, the, the easiest way to explain it. You want to put a little bit of science is you have a gene right here. It, the genome is, is made out of genes. There's a lot of genes and a lot of space between those genes that we think they don't do anything. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of regulations of those genes in that area. Mm -hmm. So you have a gene right here. I, I don't care about what's going on in this gene. I care about its promoter, which mm -hmm. is the region upstream of that gene. They got a lot of mechanisms that control the expression of this one. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I work on promoter regions. Transcription factors. Sometimes for this gene to work, you need a transcription factor to bind to the promoter to initiate the transcription. Mm -hmm. I, I do DNA protein interactions. That's a transcription factor. You want to look at DNA methylation. DNA methylation is, uh, to explain it simple, you have a carbon. I don't molecule. think I was going to be wrong. I don't think there's anything simple. <laughs> Just like about, I, I appreciate the candor and being able to explain things simply. But I mean, what you do is high end shit. <laughs> it's, look, it's it's not high end shit. It's just, do you see the interest of it or not? Uh huh. In, in everything you do in life, do you have a purpose? Do you have? Why are you doing that job? If you know why, it doesn't matter. If look. If, if it was made by a human, eh, it's not science fiction. It's, it's a protocol, especially in what we do. Like it's, it's step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. Mm -hmm. But to the thing that leads to that step one, step two, step three, a lot of R&D optimization and a lot of work behind. Mm -hmm. But it's, not, it's nothing phenomenal. Like, oh, you work on DNA. Sometimes like, do you want to look at a picture of DNA? And people, they think that I'm going to show them something weird. And it's right. just work. It, it's an electrophoresis gel. We take that DNA, we stain it, 
and we put it in in an uh, agar mm-hmm. gel, and we put electricity, and the the DNA pieces will move by size. So if you're small, you're gonna <laughs> migrate further, and uh-huh. then it's like whatever. It's like it just, and you can see it. It's just, and we look at it with uh, all kind of different inflorescence, yeah, ultraviolet, and all that, and we and you can actually look at it. You, you can see it. Mm-hmm. And it's just one band. It's just a little band. And it's like, is that DNA? I'm like, yeah. All of you, I can reduce you to one small Eppendorf tube. You will be like 20 microliter. Like, literally, people are <laughs> like, is that what? I'm like, I can put you in 20 microliter of DNA. It's like, you can't even see it. It's like, right? <laughs> and it's possible. It's not magical. Dude. Yeah. It's really easy and simple. That machine we, we showed yeah. earlier, that PCR, it, imp- it will allow us, that why we amplify the copies, because what we extract from the plant is really tiny and it's small quantities. We need to amplify it so we can study it. So it's, it looks like it's really crazy, but it's, it's simple. It, but it's, it's a lot of like hardcore science. Like yeah. that machine, it's, it got biological component and then you have other like, People working in physics and mathematics, electronics. A lot of people got together to make that machine. But doesn't make that machine something extraordinary. But people, they, they, they filled the need for it, mm-hmm. and they built it. Simple. And, and why I see the need of epigenetics to explain. You know what all this came from? I pub- uh, last year in July, I published a manuscript about the epigenetic imprint specifically DNA methylation in the story of domestication of olive trees. So I wanted to know in 5,000 years. I'm so, I'm so glad that you got to the olive tree part because I didn't, like, didn't want to leave the podcast without the olive. No, Sorry, because I'll tell you a story about the olive. <laughs> like, uh, you know what? Let's start from scratch. Start from like, scratch. From the beginning. It was like, let's start from the beginning. My story with olives. I grew up with my dad growing olives. Mm-hmm. We have a beautiful olive grove back home. We my dad is a farmer, he's an agriculture engineer, but we we bought a piece of land that has a lot of rocks and it was it was just it was trash. It was it wasn't fit for agriculture. Mm-hmm. We brother, we dug those rocks out of that piece. We didn't we didn't have any resources to get a bobcat and push that around. Yeah. No. It was like labor, hard work. We cleaned that area. We, we started our olive grove. 20 years later, I'm part of the team that will publish the first olive genome in the world. <laughs> I literally have Marc Vamontagui with me as a co-author. The guy was going to be nominated for Nobel Prize. Like, if you put Marc Vamontagui, he's from Belgium, mm-hmm. uh, the, uni- the uh, Catholic University of Ghent. And this guy is the father of plant biotechnology. Uh, and then that was in 2017 we published that. Three years later, four years later, I published the first epigenome, which is we looked at 5,000 years of domestication. Mm-hmm. What happened to those epigenetic marks? We found out that because humans like olive oil that is fruity and sweet, mm-hmm. we selected towards that kind of oil, mm-hmm. which led to the loss of epigenetic marks 
how are we gonna make it really simple? You know when you try some olive oils that they're like bitter, mm -hmm. and people are like, oh, this is horrible. That's the olive oil you want. Why? Because that's the concentration of polyphenols that would give that olive oil that pungency and that bitterness. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's the medicine in olive oil. But humans didn't like it. So for 5,000 years, they were only selecting genotypes with fruity, fruity olive oil. So Italy, Turkey, France, Portugal, Spain, yeah. all of that olive oil you get from there, bro. Don't even take it. <laughs> Don't even buy it. There was a guy from California, Dr. Gundry. He went to Morocco, to the south of Morocco. He found this guy who produces this horrible olive oil, really bitter. He made a contract with him to buy all of his olive oil. Mm -hmm. You know how much he's selling it today? You had a $45 for 350 milliliter. He bought it probably for $5 a liter. So basically, I'm telling the industry, we need to go back the opposite way, but they will be pissed because that olive oil that is bitter only comes from wild olives. You cannot tell people that spend millions and trillions and billions of whatever dollars in the breeding programs in olives to tell them, whoa, 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 let's go back to 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Right? Let's go, let's go back to the origin yeah. of, well, I mean, it's like, it's like Brussels sprouts, right? Brussels sprouts is a very, is a very, is a very uh, modern example of like what's happened in just the past 20 years. Yeah. That they have, that, that, you know, Brussels sprouts on a, on a table 30, 40 years ago were large and bitter and not, you know, not of regular consumption for folks because they just weren't now just in the past 20, 30 years, the selective breeding has got us to, yeah. to a point where they are just running smaller, leafier Brussels sprouts that taste Sweeter. sweet and yeah. yep. meaty. Like it's, it's selection. It's uh, it's crazy. Tomatoes, uh, beans, like my, my, the most beautiful example for, Breeding for like beans, the genetic diversity is insane, man. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, but uh, yeah, just to talk why epigenetics. So when I did that study, I analyzed the data and I, I worked with SIU on this project too. Uh, and we were like, if this is what happened in olives during 5,000 years, let's see what's going on in cannabis because cannabis is very old and cannabis yeah. came from the Tibetan plateau in Asia, the story that's been told, mm -hmm. and, and I'm very mad about it because they, they, uh, they did something very interesting. They wanted to follow the Silk Road and mm -hmm. the, the tea and whatever. So they, they had, they took the, let's, to come to this part of the planet mm -hmm. from Asia, a long time ago, you had to walk. Mm -hmm. So from the Tibetan Plateau, that's where all the tea and all the, all the, the roads are, you know? So if you follow that and you go west, you're gonna come from there through all the, these Eastern European countries, mm -hmm. or way, way before you get mm -hmm. there, just like to come there from like Russia and, and to get to the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. where all the trade was, like the Mediterranean was a, a road for, for, for trade. So when they got there, they skipped the whole African continent. They didn't take any samples from Africa. They took samples from Europe, and from America, but not from Africa. So they told the story that cannabis started there, and he moved through the Silk Road, through Turkey, up north to Greece, and all these countries all the way to Southern Europe, which is Spain and all of mm -hmm. that. And then in America. 
Studies prove that the first use of cannabis in Americas came after the 1400s. That's exactly when slave trade started between Africa and America. So if you forgot about that entire piece of land, mm -hmm. you are telling the story wrong because how did genetics get to America? It wasn't through the Silk Road. Mm -hmm. It was through the slave trading. So those trains came strictly from Morocco because all the trade started in Morocco. Mm -hmm. The first slave in America in the 1500s, he was from Morocco. He was brought here with the American conquistador. If you read the story, uh -huh. 1536, I would say, just read the story about this guy from Morocco. It's, it's hilarious. So I want to rewrite the story. Uh, my dear friend, he lives in Australia, and he works in the same thing. Evolution, genomics, he works on ancient DNA. He mm -hmm. works in Adelaide in the Australian Ancient DNA Center. And we had this project. We want to rewrite the history of cannabis. We're going to do exactly what they did, and we're going to use their data as third party, and we're going to take our data from Moroccan genetics and try to rewrite the history. Because you can prove. Of course I can prove. The, the imprint is in DNA. The imprint is in the DNA. And if you say that we started growing cannabis in Morocco seven to nine hundred years ago, come on. There is something going on there. Yeah. Like, literally, a few months ago, they... They discovered a new terpene in cannabis. You know what they call it? Hashishin. It comes from the drying and the curing process in Morocco. Instead of dark, mm -hmm. they dry the cannabis on the roofs of the houses. We, we, we have rooftops in Morocco. Uh -huh. You guys, you don't, you don't know anything about rooftop unless it's a bar. But in Morocco, <laughs> we have rooftops. That's uh -huh. when we put our, we dry our like, clothes and stuff yeah. when we wash them. So the, the, the plants are dried under the sunlight. So what happened is the myrcene gets messed with with the ultraviolet and gets switched into a new terpene called the hashishin, huh. published. So the knowledge in there uh -huh. is as ancient, probably older than this country. The first women that grew cannabis and women, they are the, the keepers of uh -huh. the Moroccan genetics. Women are at the heart of the cannabis industry in Morocco. Man, they, they lay down and they smoke pipes. Women do the job. The drying and the curing, it's a women's job, man, and you do a fantastic job. So there is, there is a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge that it's telling you exactly the opposite of the curing and drying system here in America. <laughs> Why not go there, meet with the people, and just soak those hundreds and hundreds of years. People, they think that Humboldt County growers are like legacy growers and yeah. they start everything. Cannabis industry started in, in Humboldt County 70 or 80 years ago. Yeah. I'm talking about... We're, we're, I'm talking we're about, talking about centuries, a, not I'm, decades. I'm talking about in the 10th century where the city of Fez, if you look at the Shriners, the hats uh -huh. and everything, that comes from the city of Fez in Morocco. In the 10th century, Fez was the largest city in the world. You want a trivia? The first <laughs> university, still operating until today. Uh -huh. The oldest university in the world is University of Al-Qarwiyin. It's in Fez. It was made by a woman, a woman Fatima Al-Fihriya. A woman built that university. So just another stigma about women in Muslim countries. And No, forget about it. Travel. Fly from New York on a straight shot. You're landing in my hometown. Go and enjoy Casablanca, the movie. 
Yeah. Memphis Bogart and all of that. We still have the Rex Cafe, man. It's still there. You can still go and, <laughs> and, and have a drink and enjoy a cigarette. Yeah. Literally, till today, you can still do that. It's like... Hesitating. Is somebody, is somebody here? Yeah. Is that, oh, no, you're good, guys. Here, we're, we're just... I'm going to wrap it up. Okay. We're good. We're good. Um, boom. Boom. No, wrong one. Wrong button. That's the right button. And that's uh, episode 98. A little quick impromptu. Uh, cut it down, shut it down, ending here. But, uh, you know, knowledge. That's what this has all been about. A particular set of knowledge, but wonderful either way. So, uh, yeah, have a good one, folks. Uh, whatever that one may be.